Well, we are in a series titled The Big Story, looking at the whole of the biblical story. And in this story, or in this series, we're exploring how the whole of the Bible is interconnected, how the beginning relates to the end, and ultimately, at the center of the Bible is Jesus, that he is the focal point, he is the one that the whole story is revolving around and pointing to. And thus far in the series, we've talked about a number of themes. The themes like creation and exodus and law, so that we can see their significance within the story, but more importantly, how those things are fulfilled in Jesus ultimately. So how we look at creation at the beginning of the Bible, but Jesus then has this new creation that he consummates. Now, the Bible has this way of utilizing different techniques or devices, literary devices, to continually tell the same story. So one of those devices is symbols. So the Bible uses symbols to tell the story. Events, people, places. So sometimes when we read in the Bible, uh, a story is going to talk about darkness. And, and that's like a literal reality in that story. We might see darkness, but oftentimes darkness is conveying evil and sin as well. So there's these different levels of the story that are continually popping up. And many of these symbols are ultimately foreshadowing Jesus. We get glimpses of Jesus beforehand, before he comes in the flesh. But you don't necessarily see that upon first reading of the Bible or upon first reading of a given story. We need help to see these connections. And I know uh, I wasn't trained to read the Bible in this way. And, and it wasn't until later in life when someone was able to help me understand, like, oh, there's, there's all of these symbols, these types, these patterns that are happening in the story that help me to be able to see there's so much more going on in the Bible and that it's so interconnected. So one of the ways I've thought about, about this is like when you make cookies, okay? Like when you make chocolate chip cookies, right? Like no one sits down, well, I hope no one sits down and says, I'm going to snack on some flour, right? Or no one takes like a stick of butter and says, I'm, I'm going to just going to lick this stick of butter because I really enjoy butter, right? Like we need all of the ingredients mixed together so that we can have this delicious, delightful reality. And, and I think the same can be said of the Bible. The Old Testament, all these stories become delightful when all of the truths of the New Testament, of the gospel, are mixed in and they shape our understanding of the Old Testament. The Old Testament can seem so disconnected from our reality. It's so different contextually from our experience. But when we're able to read it through the lens of the gospel, through Jesus, then it can come alive and make much more sense for us. And, and I think we're going to get a good example of this today. So over the next two weeks, we're going to look at two individuals who resemble Jesus. One of these individuals is talked about quite a bit in the Bible. Many of you probably know about that individual, but today we're going to talk about someone who is not so well known at all. So what I want to do to get us started here 
is I want to just try and set up where we're going to be this morning, and then we're going to jump into some specific verses. So ultimately, we're going to be we're going to be starting in Genesis 14 today. So if you got a Bible, you want to turn there, go ahead, and you can do that. But I want to set us up a little bit uh, prior to Genesis 14. So there's a man named Abram. God comes to Abram. He calls Abram. He selects him, calls him out of his country. And he says, I want you to be the father of my nation, the father of my people, of God's people. And so God then led Abram out of his land, took him and his family, and he brought them into a new country and into a new land. And in Genesis 13, what we find there is uh, Abram comes into this new land with his family. And he sees all the flocks that he has. He sees the flocks of his family members, and he says, uh, We're going to overwhelm this land. So he talks to his nephew Lot, and he says, Lot, you can have your choice of the land. So you choose where you want to go, and I am going to to choose the other um, section of land. And so they go their separate ways. They split out from one another. And then we find in Genesis 14, it begins there with this account of some warring that's going on between various kings of cities in that region. And so there's tons of really interesting names going on. So I'm not going to get into all the details right now. But they're going back and forth with this warring. And then in the midst of all of this warring, as captives are being taken and possessions are being looted, Abram's nephew Lot is taken captive by one of these kings who wins the battle. Abram hears about this, and so he takes his trained men. I love it, it says in there he's got 318, we're not going to miss any of them, 318 trained men, and he's going to come up against uh, these kings who have taken his nephew captive. And so what he does is he goes against them and he defeats them. He rescues his nephew Lot, he rescues all of the possessions that were taken from these other kings and from Lot as well. And so he's taking all of these things back and he's going to disperse them and dispense them to the kings and the lands where they're supposed to go. But ultimately, he's got his nephew back. But then there's this seemingly really weird and disconnected interaction that just pops up in the middle of the story in Genesis 14. And I'm going to read three verses here from Genesis 14 that happen as Abram's bringing Lot back. It says there, And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him, blessed Abram, and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him, being Melchizedek, a tenth of everything. So if if you're just reading this story, reading through the narrative in Genesis, and you come across this, you'd probably be like, what's a Melchizedek? Or or you'd say, that's a really weird name, and then you just kind of wouldn't even think about it, and you would just move on from there. However, the greater biblical story will help us understand that there's something very profound that's going on right here with Melchizedek. It requires digging to get there, but it's a very profound reality. So first what I want to do here is I just want to make a few observations about Melchizedek. So first of all, we see he's a king, right? He's a king in Salem. So 
two interesting points about Salem. First of all, it means peace. Okay? So what we know about Melchizedek is he's a king of peace. All right? Also, Salem is thought to be a shortened form of Jerusalem. So two things we know about Melchizedek now. Okay? He's a king of peace, and he's a king of Jerusalem. So if you're, if you're a Christian, you've, you know your Bible, already you should begin to think, I think I've probably heard of someone who's a king of peace and a king of Jerusalem. And there's some connections that maybe will start firing off for you. We also read here that Melchizedek is blessing Abram. Okay? And then it says, Abram pays a tithe to Melchizedek. There's big implications to these realities. We're not going to get into them right now. We will come back around and we'll touch on these two items later on. And then, the fact that Melchizedek is a king isn't remarkable until we read what's contained in the parentheses. He is the, it says in the parentheses, he's the priest of God Most High. And so you're like, well, that doesn't seem remarkable, the fact that he's a king. This doesn't really shed much light on that. But what we learn here is that Melchizedek is a king, and he's also a priest. So he is the first priest that's mentioned in the Bible. He's a priest of God Most High. He's a priest of the one true God. But there's something here that will become increasingly profound as the years pass or pass. So Moses' brother, okay? We've talked about Moses a number of times so far uh, in our sermon series. His brother was named Aaron. And Aaron was designated as a priest in Israel. Okay, so what this means for Aaron is he's going to be a mediator between God and the nation of Israel. So if Israel wants to talk to God, they're going to talk to God through Aaron. Okay, and if God wants to talk to Israel, they're going to, he's going to talk to God or talk to Israel through Aaron. When, when Israel sins, Aaron is going to play an important part because he's going to offer sacrifices providing atonement or payment for Israel's sins. After God delivers Israel from slavery in Egypt, as part of the many commands that he gives to Israel, there are many laws regarding sacrifices that are to be made and proper handling of the tent of meeting, or this is the place of worship for Israel. And then all of the articles that are contained within the tent of meeting as well. As well as all that's involved in the temple in later years. So there's all these laws that are given to Aaron that he is in, in charge of stewarding, making sure that these laws are carried out, that everything's handled in the appropriate and proper way for Israel. Now Aaron and Moses, they're brothers, okay? And they come from a tribe in Israel known as the Levites, okay? So God's bringing his people back in Exodus. He brings his people into the promised land. When he brings them into the promised land, there's all these sons of Jacob, and they're each going to get kind of their plot of land, okay? But the Levites, they don't get a plot of land, okay? Their inheritance is God himself, and they are in charge of being the priests for Israel. So the priesthood in Israel was only comprised of Levites. So what we need to understand here is that priesthood 
was based on physical descent. You could not be a priest unless you were a Levite. Not all Levites were priests, but in order to be a priest, you had to come from the tribe of Levi. Now, the ongoing biblical story will reveal that a priest is very different than a king, okay? Priests, they had priestly duties. Kings, they had kingly duties. But what we're finding here with the very first priest mentioned in the Bible is that he was both a priest and a king. So what we need to understand, and we want to understand this right at Genesis 14, okay? But we understand this more as we read through the Bible, is that it's very abnormal for someone to be both a priest and a king. Those roles just didn't mix, okay? Now, we're going to move forward in the story in the Old Testament, okay? So jumping from Genesis and the mention that we have of Melchizedek, we're now going to go to a passage in the book of Psalms, in Psalm 110. Psalm 110 is written by a man named David, King David, who was the greatest king in Israel. When he writes Psalm 110, there's a couple of really noticeable things in this psalm. So first in verse 1, He's writing about a Lord, about my Lord, okay? And this is a future king that David is talking about, okay? This king is going to come in the line of David. And then we also read in verse 4, it highlights there how this king is also going to be a priest, okay? So here we have this example again that's very abnormal, So we can look back and say, oh, that was Melchizedek. But now there's another king, another priest, who's going to come in the order of Melchizedek. So we've got this future-looking reality. But there's further development also here in Psalm 110. We learn that the priest-king is going to reign forever. Okay? So it's not your normal priest where he's going to be a priest and he's going to die And that's the end of him being a priest. Or being a king, he's going to die, and that's the end of him being a king. This priest king is going to reign forever. There's an eternal nature to his throne. The work that he is going to be performing is going to be an eternal work. The kingdom that he is establishing is going to be an eternal kingdom. So I hope, for those of us who are Christians who have some semblance of understanding of the Bible, that you begin to hear whispers of Jesus in this. So we've got these two, I think, somewhat obscure references to this man named Melchizedek in the Old Testament. But his significance is going to be seen much more clearly as we get into the New Testament. Melchizedek gets some serious ink in the New Testament book of Hebrews. So what the author of Hebrews is going to do is he's going to look back. He's going to look at Genesis 14. He's going to look at Psalm 110. He's going to make reference to those specific passages, but then he's going to build on them. He's going to develop the story for us. He's going to help us understand the importance of Melchizedek. Okay? So Hebrews 7 speaks of how Melchizedek blessed Abraham. And then he received a tithe from Abraham. 
So there's a number of inferences that we can make as to what's going on here back in Genesis 14. So first of all, Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. And this is saying something significant, okay? Because Abraham was selected to be the father of Israel. Okay, this is where it all starts. So this is a significant reality that Melchizedek is considered to be greater than Abraham. Secondly, Melchizedek is also considered to be greater than Levi. If I have this right, I think that Levi is the great-great-grandson of Abraham. Okay? So there's this connection between Levi and Abraham. But then, as we talked about earlier, Levi's line was responsible for all of the priestly duties in Israel. Melchizedek is greater than Levi. Third, what Melchizedek represents is greater than the law that governed the whole sacrificial system the Levitical priesthood was responsible for. And part of the reason that I'm saying that Melchizedek is greater than all of these individuals is because of what we read in Hebrews 7, 7. It says there, it is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior, okay? So remember, this is talking specifically about Melchizedek, okay? And it's saying that the inferior is blessed by the superior. So Abram is inferior. Melchizedek is superior. So what Melchizedek foreshadowed and what Jesus accomplished is far and away superior to the system that is found in the Old Testament. So we were talking about this last week, okay? Jesus came, he fulfilled the law, the Old Testament law. He does away with that. He makes that obsolete. What Jesus is doing, what he is bringing, is much better than what we find in the Old Testament. And this idea is expanded throughout much of Hebrews. Hebrews 4.14, okay? We've talked about Aaron, okay? He was not just a priest in Israel. He was what was considered the high priest, so the priest of priests. Okay? Jesus is referred to in Hebrews 4.14 as the great high priest. And then Hebrews 5.6, it compares Jesus to Melchizedek there, uh, similarly to what we find in Hebrews 6.20. And it says there, Jesus has become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So what we're finding here, these are explicit comparisons between Jesus and Melchizedek. And this is clarified in Hebrews 7.3, where it says there that Melchizedek resembles the Son of God. Melchizedek was given beforehand as a picture, as a glimpse, as a foreshadowing of something greater that was going to come along later on in the story. Hebrews 7.11, it reads this way, now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek? This is saying that the sacrificial system that was employed under the Old Testament law was insufficient. It could not accomplish what needed to be accomplished. 
The fact that sacrifices continually needed to be made, that the priests would go to the temple, they would offer sacrifices day after day after day after week after month, year after year, they would make these sacrifices. The fact that it happened over and over speaks to the fact that what they were doing was insufficient. It could not accomplish. It did not ultimately deal with the forgiveness of sin in the way that it needed to be dealt with. So Melchizedek foreshadowed a change in priesthood. He's foreshadowing. What we find in Genesis 14 is he is foreshadowing a change in priesthood. And Hebrews 7 verse 12 talks about this. When there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. So Melchizedek, back in Genesis 14, is intended to supply this hope of a different priesthood. And this would ultimately be realized in Jesus himself. One of the things that I love about the biblical story is it works in ways that we maybe don't always think. Okay? So it's not often that we ourselves maybe look backwards to find something new. Right? But that's what the biblical story is doing here. It points us backwards to Melchizedek to show us, to remind us, to give us something new. And that new thing is ultimately Jesus. And, and when we think about this, as we're in this season of Advent, right? This, this season of looking forward, of eagerly waiting and anticipating Jesus. We see the idea, a hint of Advent here in Genesis 14. That's what God's doing in this, what seems like a very meaningless or insignificant interaction between this unknown man, Melchizedek, and Abram. But it's a hint of Advent. He's giving this to his people so that they would look for something better. When the law felt heavy and burdensome, that they would be able to look back to what, to this interaction between Melchizedek and Abram and say, there's going to be something better. There's this hint of something so much better. Okay, so that's kind of the nuts and bolts of Melchizedek, of the beginning and how we get to Jesus with that. But what we want to do with this then is, what do we learn about God when we look at the life or when we look at Melchizedek? Or, or what do we learn about the gospel? What do we learn about Jesus as we look at this reality of Melchizedek and how he foreshadows the gospel and Jesus? Okay, first thing. Jesus is an eternal king of righteousness and peace. Jesus is an eternal king of righteousness and peace. When I say that, I just think that that, it just kind of is almost like, yeah, I know. For many of us who maybe have been Christians for a long time, it's like, yep, I get it, right? But that statement is a massive statement, a huge statement, that this is who Jesus is. We need this truth about God to firmly shape our thinking and our living. Jesus is an eternal king. He's an eternal king, which means that his throne will not be passed to another. There's not another king that's going to sit on that throne. Do you believe that? 
Do you believe that about Jesus? Is that how you live your life, day in and day out? That there is someone sitting on an eternal throne who is good? Or are you tossed to and fro by the churning political waters or whatever it might be that causes you to be be thrown to and fro in our day today? Jesus is an eternal king. And he is a king whose reign is marked by peace. A God who seeks to convey and to give, to provide, to promote peace. Not just when he returns, but now. Practically. Day in and day out. That in the midst of everything that's going on around us, that we would be people marked by peace. Filled with peace. And the reality is, we have our share of worry. We have our share of anxiety that pops up day in and day out. And the reality is, is that this usually can be traced back to disbelief that Jesus is an eternal king. That he is an eternal king of peace. That he is sitting on his throne. Jesus will shape his church. He will shape those who are surrendered to him. He will shape those who are believing in him, who are believing the gospel to be a people full of confidence, to be a people full of peace, to be a people who are able to walk in freedom and in joy, to be a people who not just experience peace, but bring peace to those around them. He intends that we would be a people full of peace, not searching for it. That we would be filled with it. And, and this is very New Testament as well. I mean, think about Paul as he writes his letters. He continually addresses the people that he's writing to, and, and he gives them this great greeting, full of grace and peace. He extends this to them. He wants them to be a people who are full of grace and peace. And we find this whole idea expressed really well in Colossians 1.20. talks about Jesus there making peace by the blood of his cross. This is where peace comes from. By us looking at the cross, by us believing in Jesus, offering that sacrifice for us. Peace is not found in, in rigorous discipline. It's not found in us doing a bunch of religious exercises. It's found only solely in Jesus. It's not found in us having like the perfect diet or the perfect exercise regimen. It's found in Jesus. Only Jesus. Jesus is an eternal king of righteousness and peace. Believe it. Live as though this were true. Secondly, Jesus is the perfect sufficient sacrifice for our sin. He's the perfect, sufficient sacrifice for our sin. We don't need to try to be perfect or try to make sufficient sacrifices to compensate for our sin. Old Testament priests were continually making sacrifices to address the sin of Israel. But that was according to the law. That's what the law commanded. So they had to do it over and over. As we talked about last week, Jesus has done away with that. He's done away with the law, including sacrifices. But Jesus, being the true high priest, 
also offered a sacrifice, but it was a much better sacrifice. It was not a sacrifice that needed to be repeated over and over. It was, as Hebrew says, a once-for-all sacrifice. Jesus sacrificed himself. But his sacrifice is demonstrated as better because though he died, his life is indestructible. Death could not hold him. The grave could not keep him. His life is indestructible. That's what Hebrews 7.16 says. But I think it, it needs to be said. So we don't need to offer a sacrifice to obtain salvation. We don't need to offer sacrifices to earn something from God, to perform from him, for him. However, trusting in Jesus will move us to offer sacrifices. It's only natural to become like the one that we are following, the one that we're trusting. So Romans 12.1 says this. It says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. So the Christian life is intended to be marked by this. We are called to be living sacrifices. Not living sacrifices so that we then will be saved. Because I love how this says this in Romans 12.1. It says, by the mercies of God. So we're not offering our bodies as living sacrifices for mercy. So God will then be merciful to us. We offer our lives as living sacrifices because of his mercy. That's already happened. He's already extended that to us. That's what compels and motivates us to offer our lives as a living sacrifice. But this all comes back to the fact that Jesus has sacrificed his life. He's given up himself for us. And I love, there's this great connection between Jesus and Melchizedek. That when you read Genesis 14, I think it can just kind of slide under the radar. But back in Genesis, Melchizedek brings out food and drink for Abram. Do you remember what that food and drink was? It was wine and bread. It was wine and bread. So Abram accomplishes this conquest. Melchizedek brings this out to him. And I don't think that this is accidental. The seemingly meaningless detail is foreshadowing Jesus' sacrifice. Melchizedek offers bread and wine as a blessing to Abram. He offers it as a blessing to Abram. Jesus gives his body and his blood as a blessing. And later, he gives wine and bread to his followers as a way to remember the way in which he sought to bless his people by offering his life as a sacrifice. Jesus is the perfect, sufficient sacrifice for our sin. And we see this foreshadowed all the way back in Genesis 14, in and through Melchizedek. Lastly, this is a little bit of a, an inference or a bit of a bunny trail here. But I want to I touch on this because I think this speaks well to this, the whole of this series that we are talking about right now. God cares about the details of your life. God cares about the details of your life. God has ordered the details of the Bible. 
what we find in Genesis 14 is not just circumstance, like happenstance. It's not an accident that's going on there. This is an intentional part of the story. As strange and chaotic and disconnected as the Bible may seem to you at times, it is very coherent, oftentimes much more coherent than we realize ourselves. I mentioned earlier in Hebrews 7.3, it says there that Melchizedek resembles the Son of God. He resembles the Son of God. That's what someone who reads Genesis 14, that's the intention, that there's a hint there. There's a glimpse. It's shadowy. It's foggy. But there's a glimpse there for the reader. When someone reads that in the New Testament, this should cause us to go back to the mentions of Melchizedek in the Old Testament and to see how Jesus is foreshadowed. How was he part of the story? How was Jesus part of the story early on? How was Israel in need of Jesus from a very early time? How can we find the gospel or good news in the Old Testament? How can we see how this whole story is tied together, that it's not accidental? It's not just these disconnected details. It is one story that is very connected. God is weaving details together. He is tying things up for us. And this should encourage us regarding wherever we're at today. Whatever details you feel like maybe God doesn't care about in your life. That maybe he's not sovereign. And maybe he's not in control. God does care. God is working. He is in control. God desires to heal that which is broken. You are not forgotten. And I think we see this very clearly throughout the Bible. When we're able to see how these details are very connected. There is hope in Jesus. There is hope in the gospel. We don't need to hope in our circumstances. Whatever circumstances cause you to disbelieve Jesus, to disbelieve his goodness, to disbelieve that he cares, fight against that. Fight against it with God and his word, with the truth that we find, with the sturdiness that we find of how the story is actually written and put together. God cares about the details of your life. All right. We're going to take a few moments here to reflect on Jesus. Jesus being the ultimate priest king who made provision for our sin like a priest with his sacrificial death on the cross. And he now reigns as the one true king on his eternal throne. Remember this. We're going to celebrate this as we observe the Lord's Supper. This is a time for us to examine our hearts, to confess our sin to God and to one another, to thank God for giving hope and keeping his promises. This is who God is. He is a hope-giving, promise-keeping God. And the ultimate display of that is his son on the cross. This is a chance for us to pray with others as well. So if you've never trusted in Jesus, trusted him to be the priest king, to be the sacrifice for you, to, to be the king who reigns over your life, then the bread and the cup are not for you. But Jesus is, and we want you to know that Center Church is for you as well.
We want to invite you to trust in Jesus. For those of us who have trusted Jesus as Savior, we invite you to observe observe with the bread and the cup which signify Jesus' beaten body and his shed blood for our sins. If you guys stand with me, I'm going to pray for us and then we'll go into this time of response. God, thank you for your kindness towards us. Thank you for the Bible. Thank you for giving us your word. Thank you for providing us these details that show the validity of your word, how it's all tied together. Thank you for sustaining it through many, many generations. God, I pray for us as your people that we would be able to see the beauty and the power of your word. I pray that your word, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would transform us. It would build faith in us. That we would see you as credible, and not just credible, but as glorious. As the greatest reality in this world. And so God, would you open our eyes, open the eyes of our heart. Give us faith and hope and trust in you. The promise-making, promise-keeping God. There is none like you. There is none like you. God, help us to see you as the one true God who sits on the eternal throne, as a God of peace, as a God of righteousness. And I pray that we would trust you for these realities. And I plead with you, God, that you would shape us to be a people who are like you, that we would be a people who get over ourselves, who do not order our lives around us, but around you. So God, would you capture our hearts? Would you be our priest-king in these moments as we sing these songs, we, ref- we reflect on these words, would you cement into our hearts the reality of who you are and what you have done for us? In your great name I pray. Amen. Let's respond.